chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. It's confusing, but sorry about squatting here. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 18. called Christ the wisdom and power of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And we look forward to hearing uh, Jonathan preach from that a bit later. Uh, remember a very significant time in my um, growing up life, uh, primary school, um, they, they have some things, I don't think they have them so much today, but at our primary school we had something called International Day and it was very exciting, we were just all becoming very multicultural I think in grade four, grade three and uh, my parents particularly got the news sheet, the newsletter about it and I had parents that, you know, were really wanting to get involved in everything, so we took, you know, we, we got excited. You know, upcoming International Day, dress as someone from another country. And my auntie, uh, my uncle had just married a lady from Japan, and so we got excited, we got creative, and I had moccasins, so I put the moccasins on. I had some, um, someone had silky pyjamas with little sampans on them, and so I wore my shorts with these pyjamas over the top. And then uh, Dad came up with this great idea that if I just put like a, a stocking over my head, I would look a different colour and I'd also look a little bit, you know, Asian. 
And they also, they also figured out that if I wrapped, wrapped it and hang it down the back, it would look like hair coming out. It's a bit like... Um, and we put a round uh, ice cream container on my head as well. And when you looked at me with makeup and stuff, it was hard to tell who I was, you know. Um, but we had a dress rehearsal the night before. The parents were so excited and I was excited. And um, in, the, in the morning, the day finally arrived and I got up and mum and dad, you know, uh, mum particularly got, got me all ready. And I remember driving to the school that morning to primary school. I remember sitting in the back seat very excited. And I remember um, as, we, as we got to the thing, I saw kids coming to school and I thought, this is going to be great. I can get the award because they gave out award and everything. And I remember Dad dropped me off every day at the primary school and I can remember opening the door and hearing the door close behind me in, in my mind, you know, as I shut the door and turned around. And as I turned around and heard the car drive off, I noticed that absolutely no one was dressed in International Day. And I'd got it the Thursday, one day, one week early. And Dad had gone, and I had nowhere to go except in through those school gates. I remember uh, for the whole day, I felt like a fool. I just felt embarrassed, and people go, who's that in there? And I said, don't worry about it, don't worry, move on. There was one other guy who came dressed as a German, and uh, he got the wrong day too. So we just hung out together. <laughs> And we tried to make fun of the whole thing. But it was one of the most embarrassing times in my life. And it took me a long time to get over it. I wonder if you've ever felt really embarrassed and really foolish at things like that, where you haven't been able to escape the situation, but it's just been so terrible. You know, uh, sometimes we feel really foolish about things that we've done. And it just becomes... Um, so embarrassing that we just don't know what to do about it. I was talking to uh, a woman who just talked about her growing up situation where they lived in the home with a mother and father and talked very rarely about their feelings. And what happened was in the midst of this family, when you did things that were wrong because they focused on facts and statistics and everything like that, you know, who was doing this and that and whether you did this and that, if you did something wrong, the parents would say, they get upset and they go, you idiot, to the kids. And this lady was sharing, you know, how that whole experience of doing anything stupid or wrong or anything that failed brought condemnation and fear of being like, you idiot, you idiot, you fool. If you've ever grown up in a family like that or ever known uh, that in a work situation or wherever you are, you know how fearful it can be to be seen to be a fool, to be silly, to be stupid. Tonight's passage, in this passage Paul talks about the cross. He talks about those who God has called to be followers of Jesus and part of the cross. And he's called, it talks also about what those who are followers of Jesus are to do with this message and how we're to share it with others. And do you know what? 
incredible thing about this is that Paul doesn't say, because the cross of Christ can make you seem really foolish, you know, be really cool instead. What he says tonight is that it's always better to be a fool for Jesus than to be wise in the world's eyes. Let's pray, shall we? God, tonight, we just want you to speak to us. And God, I pray that you just use your word to speak to each one of us and to challenge us tonight about the need to be a fool in the world's eyes and live our lives in total commitment to you and your message. Speak to us, God, tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, this is the first message uh, from the book of Corinthians and uh, the city of Corinth, which you'll know by now, was a, uh, a large city. You know, it had a population of 250,000 free people. And on top of that, there were 400,000 slaves. In many ways, uh, Corinth was the chief city in Greece. And the reason for this was because of its location. Um, it was in uh, the... It was located right near the Corinth Isthmus, right in a, in a way where there were two ports on either side so that people could come to Corinth from either way and bring their goods and their trade. And therefore, it was in a real prime position for commerce and it was a dominant commercial culture. Its culture, too, was, was Greek. And its people uh, were very interested in Greek philosophy and they placed a high premium on wisdom. You know, getting wisdom and understanding wise things was really a part of the culture. And religion was in, important to people. Uh, they, they really were interested in religion, but it was kind of uh, religion in many gods. In Corinth, they had 12 temples, and uh, one of the most important was the temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love. And uh, like most large cities, the city of Corinth was a place that attracted uh, many people, and there was, it was a real gathering place for immoral activity to take place. At one time, uh, the worship of Aphrodite fostered prostitution um, in, in the name of religion. And there were, uh, at one time, a thousand sacred prostitutes in the temple to the Greek god of Aphrodite. You know, um, there's a, sh a terrible show that I've never watched and I don't think you should watch either. It's completely Im immoral that's called Californication. And the, they take the word of the city of California to make it its name, a name that stands for immorality. Well, it's interesting that in the time of Paul's time, to, Corinthia, uh, to um, Corinthianize meant to uh, practice sexual immorality. That's how, how much the city had become known for its immoral 
activity. In Paul's letter, he addresses a number of major issues that were going on in, uh, in, in the church at Corinth. And uh, in this environment, in this city, uh, he addresses many of the issues that the Christians were really struggling to, to live as Christians and be strong in their faith in. And in this chapter, Paul has been addressing um, the, the Christians. He, he's greeted them and he has immediately gone on to talk about the divisions in the church. And uh, Graham spoke about that a couple of weeks ago and about the different uh, groups that were starting to form that were connected to leaders of different home groups and philosophies. And it was the, the Christians were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And as Graham so well put, said, Christ is he's not divided. Is Christ divided? No, Paul would have none of it. And tonight in this passage, Paul continues on in addressing divisions in the church. And it seems here that tonight there are three subjects that he wants to address in these passages. And the three of them are the message of the cross. That's in uh, 18 to 25. Then he addresses the people who God calls to follow him in 26 to the end of the chapter. And then finally in 2 Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 5, he addresses how those who follow him are to proclaim the message of Christ. In each of these issues, Paul shows that the world has views about the message of Christ and they're so totally different to God's people and to those who have been saved by him. That the people who follow him are, are, are not often seen completely different to how God sees them by the world. And that those who follow him are to proclaim the message of the cross, even though the world thinks it's really silly to do that. In this passage tonight, it brings out clearly for us today, for you and I today, uh, that just as much as it was in the year 50 AD when this letter was written in, to those in Corinth, that it's always better to be a fool for Jesus than to be wise in the world's eyes. It seems, in fact, that the more you want to follow Jesus, the more foolish you'll become to those around you, to those in the world. When Paul begins this passage and in uh, this section, first section, he says that the message, the message of the cross is foolishness in the world's eyes. That's how they see it. That's how they see it. But it's the power of God to those who have received this message and are receiving the benefits of life in that. That's what he says in verse 8, and he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. In the message of the cross, the message of the cross is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth. He was despised. He was rejected. 
He was brutally put to death. He was put on a cross, dying a horrible criminal's death. This is the message of the cross. And the message of the cross is that those who are sinful, those who have turned their back on God, those that have completely sinned and gone against him, were those who are responsible for putting him there. But not only that, that it was necessary for Jesus to be brutally and horribly killed on the cross for those who have sinned to receive forgiveness from God and relationship with him. That God chose to send his son to die in my place instead of me having to take the penalty of sin in my life. That he willingly, Jesus willingly gave up his life for me so that I can be forgiven, so that you can be forgiven, so that whoever believes in him can be forgiven. It's a message of the cross. It's humbling. It's hurtful. It's painful. It's love. To be forgiven by God justly and fairly through the obedient, willing sacrifice of God's own dear son. To know the cross and to know Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to find forgiveness. There is no other way to be given new life. There is no other way except through the cross. That's why it's so significant to us, isn't it? I mean, we sing, at the cross I bow my knee where your blood was shed for me. There's no greater love than this. We sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour content on all my pride. And we, we sing once again, God, I look upon the cross where you stand. I'm humbled by your mercy, and I'm broken inside. You know, you, to come to the cross, you must be broken. You must recognise your need, that you're a sinner in great need of being saved. As John Newton, the, the slave trader who became a Christian and wrote Amazing Grace, in, just recently in the film Amazing Grace said, two things I know are true. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. And Paul writes that the, this message, this message that you, you must come to humbly is actually not wonderful as it is for us to other people. In fact, the opposite is true. It's foolishness to other people. It's ridiculous. It's silly to those who are perishing. And the, the, the wording there, to those who are perishing, it's those who are in the act of continually perishing. But this very gospel, people see as silly, is the very same gospel which is in the act of saving people 
who respond. And Paul says that there's two kinds of people, those that are perishing and those that are being saved. And all of it depends on our response to the gospel message to Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Paul challenges those here who think they are wise. He, he begins, he, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He, 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 he challenges those in Corinth who would be saying, I'm wise because I know all of this. Look what he writes in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Uh, here, the prophet Isaiah is writing, and, and through the prophet Isaiah, God is saying, you know, you think you're wise. I will, I will show you what being really wise is. I'm God. And I will override all your thinking. Then Paul goes on in verse 20 and says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? He's sticking out his chest and and challenging them. Has God God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Through this thing that so many people think is silly, God actually snatched people out of the grip of hell and sin and gave them over to being saved through their belief in Jesus. Who who were these people who, who thought the cross of Christ was foolish. Paul saw uh, two fundamental ways in which the, the unbelieving world kind of attempted to construct a way to God. There were two ways that he saw that it was clearly happening in his day in Corinth. Uh, it, it, first of all, there were the Jews. And the Jews were those who wanted God to meet all their criteria by providing irrefutable and tangible proof kind of proof on which they could really base their convictions, have strong factual evidence, their demand for evidence, it seems, and their interest in the practical, you know, faith. In the light of of this, they kind of demanded that they be given clear signs. You know, when Jesus addressed the Jews in John's Gospel, in John chapter 6 and verse 30, uh, Jesus told them, He told them clearly, he said, you know, the work of God, if you want to do the work of God, is to believe in him, in me, to believe in me, in the one who God has sent. And the Jews' response was, well, what miraculous sign will you give us? What what, uh, thing will you give us so we may see it and we may believe? What will you do for us? They wanted a sign. You know, the Jews thought that the Messiah would be clearly identified by his power and by his strength, by his might, that he would bring in and usher in a new uh, kingdom that would overthrow the political authorities of the time. So for them, a crucified saviour was foolish, ridiculous. And, And Paul it says in verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs. And in 23, he says, but we preach Christ. We preach Christ 
a stumbling block to the Jews. Today I can see so many people who are like the Jews because they demand a sign before they believe. I want God to speak to me, they say. I want Jesus to do a miracle in my life. Uh, then I'll believe. You know, I want God to help me find the right guy or girl uh, for me to, to marry or go out with. I'm going to take away my health problems and then I'll believe in him. Then when you start to talk about the cross, it's kind of like, what? I'm sinful. I need to turn away from my sin. No, 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 no. I need a Jesus who will help me sort my whole life out and fix it out. But I'm not the way you are offering, you're talking about. That's ridiculous. This is what I need. This is what I need. And they miss out on the real power of God to save because they won't come to him repentant, humbly, broken, trusting in Jesus Christ, not on a God who will answer requests and fix problems like a slot machine drink when we put the money in and comes out the answer. So many people are like that. And because they won't come to him in humility and brokenness, they miss out on the power of God to save them. Second group of people, the Jews were one. But also there's a second group, the Greeks. And in Corinth, um, they preferred to speculate uh, their way towards God uh, through reasoning and argument and trying to figure things out. They used their intelligence and intellect to try and create a God and then uh, they trying to create this God in their own image and how they would want their God to be. And then they would kind of... Um, then after doing that, they'd find it impossible to have a personal relationship with a God that they've only just made up, you know. It would be difficult to, to create a God and then, say, have a personal relationship with him. So for them, God, God was distant and far off, detached, not personal in any way. And w- what happened to them, because they saw that God was a God that they created and was unable to feel and understand, when the cross of Christ was preached, when the cross of Christ about a God who loved them so much that he would send his only son who would die on a cross for us, it was a contradiction in their beliefs. How could this possibly be? It was utterly foolish. The preaching of the cross, that God was in Christ, giving himself could be so that you and I could be made right was ridiculous to them. So Paul wrote in verse 22, and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, foolishness to the Gentiles. I think today many people do what the Greeks do instead of looking to the Bible to see what the Bible says about who God is and what he's done for us. They start looking inward and uh, they kind of, say things out of their own minds to 
imagine what God must be like. They try to determine who God is themselves. They, they believe that what they feel is right because they believe it. And what you believe is right because you believe it. And as long as we don't try and affect each other, it's all nice and comfortable. You know, it's kind of like what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is me. And, it's, and, and to think that they would have to put their trust in a God who revealed himself in a book uh, almost 2,000 years ago and over the thousands of years beforehand it seems ridiculous to them. What? <laughs> I have to believe in this God who, who died because I'm sinful and I'm, I'm, I'm wrong and I need to come to him broken? Hang on, I've been creating my own. I'm the one who determines what's right in my life. Don't talk to me about that. They think it's foolish, the cross. They think it's ridiculous. And Paul reassures believers in Christ in Corinth who may have been caught up there in the culture and may have been feeling like the gospel that they had, had believed in, the, the risen, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, was maybe not uh, good enough or not working enough. And Paul says to them, it's always better to be a fool for Jesus than wise in the world's eyes. He says in verse 24, but to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is true wisdom. This is true, uh, true understanding. The power of God at work changing an individual heart, forgiving individuals, giving them new life and coming to them. Verse 45, he makes it clear for the the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. That we would try and determine who the creator of the heavens and earth is, is foolish and not the other way around. God chose a message that would ensure that those who came to him would not come on their own terms. They would not come demanding a sign and then thinking, well, I'll follow him because he gives me a sign. And on the other hand, God ensured that the message would not be received by those who were boldly making their own assertions about who God is, the Greeks, but to those who would respond to a crucified saviour in brokenness and humility. This was a prerequisite, it seems. This was God's plan. So that's the first thing. Verses 18 to uh, 25, the message of the cross. The message of the cross. The world sees it as foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The second thing that Paul addresses here is that people see that, look, look in the people that are followers of Christ seem foolish. People are foolish in the world's eyes who are followers. And the people in Corinth must have been thinking, well, we look around at all the uh, people here who are wise and well-dressed and talking and have all the public attention, but, hey, what about those 
who are followers of Christ, we seem like we're nothing. Who does God choose to call today? This is um, a strange gospel. This is a crucified saviour seems silly in the context of Corinth. You would think that God would choose the best and the smartest and the wisest and the most influential people to be his followers, the most highly respected. But Paul explains that's not the case. Look what it says in verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, not by human standards. Not many of you were the influential ones. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and despised things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Why on earth... Would God choose people like that? Weak, foolish. Now, when I think about us today, I think God sometimes does choose pretty incredible people to follow him. I think about Jim Wallace this morning when he spoke. I think, wow, this guy's a SAS command force, you know, a special command. He was in command of the SAS forces and the special forces. He's a brigadier. He, he was being asked to advise on counter-terrorism. And I think, you know, now he's felt God calling him to be a represent, you know, managing director of the Australian Christian Lobby. And the way he spoke and challenges today, God's using him, an incredible man. But, you know, I think people like him are the exception not the norm. Uh, I think uh, God does use some pretty amazing people sometimes. But many times, I, you know, I've, I've mentioned to you how I failed year nine, how I failed my, half of my first year of Bible college, how I, I've made so many mistakes and blunders in life that it's just incredible that God even chooses to, to use me. And time and time again, I've heard people up here preaching saying, you know, you wouldn't believe what I've been through in my life and that God would use me. Mandy and I were on our holidays just recently and both of us read a book called Out of the Black Shadows. And it's a book by uh, Stephen Linger, who's the uh, head of African enterprise in Africa at the moment. And uh, this, this man uh, tells in his story his testimony in the book that as just a, a boy, he with his younger brother and sister were abandoned by their mother in a marketplace. They were already poor. They were already hungry. They were already starving. And she said, just wait here. And he felt the responsibility for his little brother and sister. And, and she just left them. And he sat there in the middle of this poverty-stricken place, not knowing what to do. He grew up as a child and, 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 and teenager, feeling, feeling abandoned and feeling unloved. He ended up spending most of his nights uh, under a bridge. He dug a hole out into the ground just to, to sleep in there under a bridge. He, he, he just lived early life, you know, with, with nothing, hungry, trying to just make it through the day, feeling often worthless and abandoned. And yet God met him in an incredible way. 
and is used, using him still today with African enterprise. He, he doesn't choose many wise and brilliant people in the world's eyes, but God chooses those who know that there's no way that it's them that can be doing what they're doing. There's just no possible way. That's why God would do this. That's why God would choose to use ordinary people, weak people in the world's eyes, foolish people in the world's eyes to to do his work. You know why? This is why Paul says, Paul says uh, he chose these people in verse 29 so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you know what would happen if it was only brilliant people that got to uh, you know, serve God and be part of his family and part of his kingdom? If it was only brilliant people that he called, you know, then we would say, well, it's not the gospel of Christ. It's our gifts. It's our abilities. But the reason he chooses ordinary people like you and me is so that we would know that this could not be anything else but the power of God at work in our brokenness, in our weakness and in who we are. And, you know, when when we come to this cross like that, we're in exactly the right place to be used by God. If you feel tonight that you're not worth much, you don't have many gifts that, you know, perhaps God could never use you. Uh, but if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and put your trust in him, you know, you're so much closer to being used in incredible ways by God than the person tonight who says, I'm fantastic. You know, I've read the Bible a hundred times and I know what I'm on about, you know. Sometimes God says, you are the hardest people to reach because you think you can do it in your own strength. And whether you have read the Bible hundreds of times or not, whether you don't know much about it, if you come to the cross, that's foolishness to the world. But if you surrender, he'll give you off. The final thing that Paul talks about here is how those who the world sees as foolish, are to proclaim a message that the world sees as foolish, the message of the cross and, and how we're to do that. He gives us advice on that. And Paul says here, he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Even though In the world's eyes, the message is foolishness. Even though in the world's eyes, God uses the weak and the foolish ones to proclaim it. This is how God meant it to be. This is how he planned it. So preach the word. Tell others about him. Don't try to snazzy it up, you know. Don't try and... uh, 
make it all nice and palatable to people. Don't ever remove the cross as the central thing to the gospel that that God would send his only son to die on the cross so that you can be forgiven. Don't avoid that. That's the core of the gospel. Don't try and make it all trendy so that people, uh, you know, will be more palatable to it. Let people know that the way to the Father is through a crucified Saviour. Don't use flowery words like expiation or propitiation, you know. Just speak about Jesus to them. Tell them about the power of God through Jesus Christ that can change their life in the way that he's changed yours. Depend on the power of God as you preach in your weakness, in your fear, in your trembling. Depend on his power, not your abilities or your gifts or your strength, but share the gospel, trusting in his power and believing that it is God's power at work in the gospel. And let's see his kingdom advance like it did in Corinth as Paul continue to preach a message that seemed foolish to the world. It was the power of God. People who seemed weak, he used greatly. So you and I take the message and speak it because that's exactly how it's meant to be. And the more foolish you, you, you feel and you're seen by to be in the eyes of the world, the more you can know you're doing God's will. It's always better to be a fool for Jesus than wise in the ways of the world. Some of you have given up or changed careers because of the gospel. That's good. If that's what it took, it's good. You're not a fool. You need to hear that. Some of you have faced criticism at uni in some of your class group discussions or in some of your lunchtime discussions. And as you've shared your faith, you've been treated like you were silly, dumb, foolish. That's okay. That's how it's meant to be. That's how it's supposed to be. Those who realise that what they think is foolish is the power of God. is the only way to come to him. Good. Keep it up. Some of you have ended a relationship that you know was not of God and you feel stupid about that and you look silly because of the stand you've taken. I just want to say, good. You're no fool. You're no fool. You're wise in God's eyes. It's always better to be a fool for Jesus than wise in the eyes of the world. I just want to close tonight by telling you about a a friend who I sat down with just recently. He told me about what's his his journey, you know, as he's tried to get a job um, that would suit just the field that he's in. And he finally got a job 
that was demanding, but in his little niche area. And he was working really well. And just recently, uh, the people where he worked came to him and said, look, I've got to tell you, your next project is this, is in marketing and, and web design. And they said, we have a pornography um, you know, contract, very expensive to the company, and we want you to design and work on this. You know? He said to him, I'm not going to work on it. You know, I'm not, I told you at the start about my Christian faith. I'm not going to work on it. You know, the boss got so angry and uh, he, he sort of came back, uh, left it for a few days and the boss came back and he said to him, look, I've got to tell you, this is important to the company, it's important to us and you can just get over all that Christian stuff. You know? What he, he could have just as well said is, you've been a fool. You, know, you can believe that, but don't let it affect the business. And he said to him, you have to make a choice. You either do what I'm asking you to do or you leave. Now, uh, the guy said, no way, I'm sticking to what I believe. And I've already told you I'm not changing. And in a day or so later, the, the boss came back and said, look, all right. But uh, another job offer came up and uh, this guy took the other job offer. And I had to say to that guy, you're no fool. God will honour you as you live for him. People will see your testimony. And even if people think you're silly, who cares? Preach the gospel anyway. Trust in God's power, not your own might. And may God work mightily in you as you're a fool for him. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you for sending your son. God, we want to thank you that uh, even though it's hurtful, it's painful to see your son uh, and to read about your son dying on a cross and to know that that ha happened. We just accept, God, that this is the only way. And we want to thank you that you've forgiven us, that you, risen Lord Jesus, are at work in our lives, that your Holy Spirit empowers us to live lives that are different, that are depending on your power, not our wisdom, not our might. And as we go, God, this week, we, we just ask that you would keep us and that we would be obedient to keep you, the cross of Christ, central in our life, central in our thinking, central in our relationship to you. And God, if people think we're silly, we don't care. We belong to you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.